Welcome to the Mercy Commons podcast. Thank you for joining us today. We trust that the Word of God encourages you and that the Holy Spirit empowers you. Good morning, everybody. It's good to, uh, it's good to see you, at least half of you. It's good to, good, good to see you. Um, yeah, it, it's a, a dis- distinct privilege this morning to, uh, to kick off a new series that we're calling On This Rock. Um, and it's got a pretty purposeful subtitle. Uh, the subtitle is The Prevailing Church. On This Rock, The Prevailing Church. Um, I have to say, I said this in morning prayer, um, but in me kind of just prepping and studying this morning and, and uh, looking at the passage, I'm just incredibly encouraged that the church globally is in really good hands. <laughs> Jesus knows what he's doing um, and, uh, and, and we're, we're going to take a closer, we're going to take a closer look to, at that. According to Webster, Webster's dictionary, prevailing means to continue in use, to persist, to gain ascendancy, to be or become effective or effectual. For the next four weeks leading up to Easter, we will look at how the church prevails, how it's different than what we might expect and why we can trust that it has and it ultimately will prevail. There's a lot of press these days, uh, especially, you know, especially in the Western, uh, Western church, Western, Western civilization, about the death of the church. In fact, you know, a quick Google search, uh, don't do that now, but a quick, quick Google search, uh, you'll find all sorts of pundits and researchers, leaders and people who are declaring that the church is really only a, sh- a few short years or decades away from being no more. Uh, I'm not sure if you can see kind of the, the articles that are on the screen, but um, I'll just read off some of the headlines from my own Google search. This one is from the United States. In the U.S., the decline of the church happens at a rapid pace, end quote. This one from the Philippines. Duterte claims the Catholic church will disappear in 25 years, end quote. From England, from the Guardian newspaper, the Guardian view on disappearing Christianity Suppose it's gone forever. And from our friends in Canada up north, the Church of Canada may disappear by 2040, says New Report. These modern headlines, these modern headlines remind me of comments from the ancient Roman historian Tacitus, who wrote pretty dismissively about the church when speaking of how the emperor at the time, uh, the time uh, his name was Nero, Uh, blamed this kind of massive fire that broke out in Rome in AD 64. He blamed it on the Christians. Nero wasn't a super popular emperor, so he was looking to pass the blame somewhere, and Christians weren't really well-liked, so he said they did it, and, 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 and kind of blamed them. And this is what Tacitus had to say, quote, checked for a moment this pernicious, which is a fancy word. My wife had to tell me what this word. She's an English major, so she helped me understand that this that word means kind of being destruct, destructive or harmful. Checked for a moment this pernicious superstition. He's talking about us. <laughs> Checked for a moment, kind of put down for a moment, this pernicious superstition again broke out, not only in Judea, the source of the evil, but even in Rome. That even in Rome, besides being put to death, they, the Christians, were made to serve as objects of amusement. They were clothed in the hides of beasts and torn to death by dogs. Others were crucified. Others set on fire to serve to illuminate the night when daylight failed. 
Nero had thrown open his grounds for the display and was putting on a show in the circus where he mingled with the people. This, by the way, this, this Nero, this emperor, uh, and this writer, Tacitus, he is writing during the time of Peter and Paul. Like he's literally writing at the, at the same, at the, in the same time. And this emperor that he's talking about that's doing all these terrible things, he actually is also the one that in the, in the New Testament where they tell us to be subject to the authorities, this is the guy, which is nuts. But that's the, that's the guy. This is, this, this is, the, this is the emperor. Early, uh, early, on in, early on in our marriage, uh, Val and I got a chance to go to, go, to, go to Italy. And, um, you know, we did, it was a short trip, and we did the kind of the normal tourist stuff. And one of those things was stopping off at the Colosseum um, and, and doing a tour of, of the Colosseum. So one of the things, in the Colosseum, during the games, the, uh, the, the emperor had a special box that was reserved for him to see the games, govern over the games, be close to, kind of be close to the action. And, uh, and at one point during the tour, we stopped in this clearing in, in, in the Colosseum, kind of on the lower level, and we looked out at the ground floor. And I, I remember standing there looking out and, and seeing kind of the tunnels under the floor. And just, I just remember thinking about all the people that had died in this place. I mean, just not just Christians, but lots and lots of people. But I also couldn't help but start to think of my brothers and sisters who, who were killed in this arena and killed in this spot. And after a few moments, the tour guide, he, got, he, he kind of uh, guided our attention across the arena to this, um, to this kind of solitary cross that was on the, on the lower level. And uh, uh, it was kind of an odd thing to see because we're not in a church. I mean, we're in the Colosseum. <clears throat> and uh, he went on to say that the cross had been placed in the exact spot where the emperor would have sat the cross towering over the emperor's box. Brothers and sisters, Nero no longer lives. The Caesars are gone, and you and I are still here. The church prevails. The church will prevail. The church always will prevail. She prevails still. The rumors of her death have been greatly exaggerated. The foundation of a prevailing church is this idea of the rock, the rock on which the, the prevailing church is built. If you've got a Bible, grab it. If it's uh, old school or it's on a device, both are, both are great. Um, we're uh, we're going to look at Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 20. Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 20. I'm going to read a, a, a kind of a unique translation. It's not too different from the ESV but this actually comes from theologian uh, Frederick Bruner. All right, starting in verse 13. <clears throat> now, when Jesus came into the territory of Caesarea Philippi, he kept putting this question to his disciples. Who are the people saying that the Son of Man is? And they answered, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, and still others Jeremiah, or one of the other prophets. And he said to them, but you, who do you say that I am? Simon Peter responded and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the God who is alive. And Jesus responded and said, Blessings on you, Simon Bar-Jonah, Simon son of Jonah, because mere flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. It was my Father in heaven who did this. And now I am going to tell you something. You, you're rocky. 
and on this very rock, I am going to build my own church. And even the gates of death will not be able to withstand this church. I will give to you, Peter, the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind here on earth will be, have been bound in heaven. And whatever you loose here on earth will have been loosed in heaven. Then Jesus charged the disciples, tell no one else that he was the Christ. Would you pray with me just for a minute? Father, I ask that as we, um, as we start this series, as we come kind of through what has been a, uh, a, a unique year uh, that's been filled with different things, uh, challenges and blessings, but, but lots of challenges and lots of transition, I pray that you would show us once more, both this morning and as we, as we look at your church and look at how you're building your church, that you will prevail, that we can have hope, that we will have courage to step in and join you in the work of what you're doing, your prevailing work, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Listen, the, the Bible is like so, so rich in metaphors. We, we know that the church, if you've been around church for a while, you know the church is not a building, right? You know, we all kind of heard that. I've, I've heard that growing up. It's the people. The, the, church, the church is the people. In our text today, the word that Jesus uses for church is ecclesia, which is essentially a gathering, a, a people who are called out to, to, to gather, called out of their homes and gathering together. It's a people. But the Bible is also, uh, it also uses other metaphors for the church. And, and, and a building is very much a, a specific metaphor that it uses. Paul tells us that we are God's temple in 1 Corinthians 3.9. And this same Peter from our passage today who hears this commendation from Jesus about being a rock, um, he tells us that we, each one of us, are living stones. We're living rocks being built into a spiritual house together in 1 Peter 2.5. This morning, if we're going to understand what the rock in this passage actually is uh, and how Jesus is building his church upon it, uh, we need to better understand the surroundings of where the spiritual house is, is being built. So we're, we're going to look at the historical and geographical context of where Jesus said these words. I, I think it's going to shed tremendous light on the passage, tremendous amount of information on what Jesus is saying and what it actually means for, means for us. The passage starts off in verse 13. It says, now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, the region of Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi was an impressive Greco-Roman city about 30 miles north of the, of the Sea of Galilee. That's like from here to Pasadena. Yeah, it's not, not that far, not that far away. It's located at the base of the largest mountain in Israel uh, called Mount Hermon. Here's the thing about Mount Hermon. It has a very deep, very dark religious historical significance. Uh, in the Jewish imagination, there's a lot of stuff that happened, a lot of stuff that happened there. Long before the children of Israel inhabited the land, long before they, they came in, the Canaanites worshipped the storm and the fertility god Baal there. Baal, Baal. Then the children of Israel eventually continued the worship of Baal here and even erected a golden calf only a few miles from this location during the reign of a very wicked king named Jeroboam. And the Bible says that God was angry with Jeroboam because it led all of Israel astray. It was a big, big, big deal. Eventually, 
fast forward a little bit, eventually the Greeks settled here in this, this little region, this little area. And, 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 uh, and, and when they did, they named it Paneus. Okay? Baal worship was replaced by the worship of the Greek god Pan. P-A-N. Pan is the lusty, half-human, half half-goat, flute-playing god of the shepherds, flocks, mountainsides, hunting, rustic music, and fertility. How's, how's that for a resume? As, as Rome takes over, so, you know, we have Greek, and as Rome takes over, Panius, the city, eventually becomes Caesarea Philippi, a city honoring Caesar and named by Herod's son, Philip, Caesarea Philippi, who made the city his capital during the time of Christ. So, so Herod's son, Philip, made his little world, his little kingdom, his little capital. Caesarea Philippi was the center, was the center of it. And, and, and when he did, he increased. He didn't decrease uh, idol worship. He increased idol worship and deity worship. He had a temple that was dedicated to the worship of Augustus Caesar, who, by the way, Caesar himself, uh, was, uh, was considered a son of God, uh, a deity, and thought to, be, thought to be that. There was a temple to Caesar. There was a temple dedicated to Pan. There was a temple dedicated to Zeus. And there were two other temples related to Pan worship and fertility rituals, if you get my drift. Fertility rituals. There's kids, so fertility rituals. At the high point of the city was this massive rock, this massive rock. And I think that, I'm not sure how well you can see it on the screen. If it's there, it's pretty, it's pretty dark. But if you Google it, you can find some crazy photos of, 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 this, of this location. There's this massive, massive cliff that's at the base of Mount Hermon that just keeps going up. And, and at this high point, this is where the temples are built. They're all built literally right into the side of this massive rock. And, and you can still see the, 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 niches, the niches there today where the, the idols would have been placed. They're literally still, still there carved into the side of the rock. But there is one more thing about this location that's really important to our text. And that it's something that's behind the temple that's dedicated to Caesar was this massive, massive limestone cave. And inside this cave was a huge tributary of water. Uh, the snow from Mount Hermon, when it would melt, it came down through the limestone, and it filled this massive spring and tributary up in this huge cave. And, and, and historians tell us the ancients, they couldn't measure it. They tried to measure it. They couldn't measure it. It was too deep. They believed that it was bottomless. And literally thought that it was the gate to the underworld. It was known as one of the gates to the, un to the underworld. A gate of hell. A gate of Hades. This cave is where the fertility gods spent the winter. They, they, they would go there. They spent the winter. And hearing, here, kind of facing the temples, the pagan idols, the worshipers engaged in fertility rituals. And the belief that those degrading actions would somehow, would somehow enticed the return of Pan and other fertility deities in the spring to bless them. It's, it's here. This is the backdrop of our text. This is, this is where Jesus is at. This is the background. So you might be thinking like, okay, that's cool. Nice little history lesson. What, is it, what does it actually have to do with what Jesus said? And what does it have to do with us? The next, you know, 20 minutes or so, I, I, I hope to outline three things 
that this rock tells us about the nature of the prevailing church, this passage, and when Jesus declares this rock, three things. The first, the church plays offense, not defense. The second, the church is not dependent on human religious performance. And the third, the church prevails in him. In him. We're going to look at the first one. The church plays offense, not defense. As the church does, as the church goes, as the church plays offense, as the church follows its risen, its risen Lord, it will spread to the ends of the earth. The Jewish people were to be a blessing to the nations of the world, but they were also to remain distinct, right? That God provided them laws and practices to help them remain distinct, and he promised them a land to inhabit, to inherit, a promised land to possess, to be gathered into. But over time, they became nationalistic, self-focused. The laws and the practices kept them so separate from sinners and Gentiles that they forgot that the whole point wasn't just to be distinct. It was to be a blessing to the whole world. Jesus comes on the scene and he flips the script. Everything he does reenacts the story of Israel, including choosing 12 disciples, 12 disciples in the same way that there were 12 tribes of Israel. Jesus is sent to the land, to the people of Israel, but his focus is not the land. His focus is the people. So here at Caesarea Philippi, a place filled with historic darkness, and I didn't even tell you everything. There, there's, there's a lot that has happened in this, in this region. A place where the powers and the principalities are literally on full display. A place at the literal edge of Israel's northernmost boundary, on the edge of their world. Jesus, the Jewish rabbi, leads 12 of his students for an important lesson and historic proclamation of who he is and what they are to be about. This is a highly symbolic thing that Jesus is doing. This visit to Caesarea Philippi is hinting at the worldwide direction and missionary intention of Jesus and his church. This proclamation may begin in Israel, but it will go out to the ends of the earth. It won't be terribly long. It won't be terribly long before this same group of disciples will hear the risen Jesus say to them, all authority in heaven and earth has been given unto me. Go therefore and make disciples. Go therefore and make disciples. Jesus does not tell them, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Stay here therefore and be separate. That's not what he said. When the disciples hear Jesus tell them to go, you better believe, you better believe that they'll remember the day that Jesus led them to this pagan city on the edge of their world and told them he would build his church even in places like this, maybe especially in places like this. Dr. Kenneth Bailey points out that the metaphors, I love this, that the metaphors in the Old Testament Kenneth Bailey, by the way, is another one of my theology crushes. So <laughs> Dallas Willard and Kenneth Bailey. Kenneth Bailey is another one. One of the things that he points out is that in the Old Testament, the metaphors that are predominantly used in the, in the Old Testament are, are defensive in nature. The Lord is a fortress, a shield, a strong tower that the righteous run into, right? 
And there's nothing wrong with that. Like all for it sounds awesome. But it is significant, church. It is significant that in the New Testament, we don't follow the same metaphors. They're not repeated. These metaphors change. The, the strongest metaphors that are repeated is, is God the Father. And, and, and the metaphor of the good shepherd is actually picked up a, a, a few different times. You see, the church had experienced Emmanuel. They had experienced God with us. They had experienced the good shepherd. They had experienced the indwelling of the Holy Spirit that casts out fear and fills us with power, reminds us who we are and commissions us to go. They had seen and tasted of the resurrection. They would proactively follow a risen, a risen Savior. Are we people, this is a question for us, are we people who stop at reveling and enjoying our salvation and just stop there? Or are we people that overflow into a joy that shares what we have? I want to be that kind of person. I know sometimes I'm not. And it's my prayer that I would be and that we would be. The next way that we see the church on offense is that the gates of death won't hold us back or hold us in. Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, Rocky. And on this rock, this large rock, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. In responding to Peter, I can see Jesus standing in, this, in the massive rock and cliff formation embedded with false gods and pagan worship and saying, yes, Rocky, rock. I had a, I had a good friend named, named Rocky who taught me a lot about Jesus. So when I read this, I can't help but think of him. The grace of God. Like, rock, you and your brothers here are gonna be larger and more sure than the, that rock over there. And speaking of that rock, that massive cliff that you see, you know, the one that has the cave at the bottom, uh, the bottom of the rock, that, the gate to hell that everyone is afraid of, even that will have no power over the group of people I will build. Water and sickness and demons are, the, are not the only things that will submit to me. Death will also submit to me. In speaking of the gates of Hades in the imagination of the ancient people, theologian Derek Bruner says this. Speaking of, speaking of Hades, Hades was the, ancient way, was the ancient's way of saying the place or powers of death. It was the fear of many in the ancient world that the human soul that passed through the doors of death could never return. But Jesus promises his community the ultimate power, the power to come back through the doors of death. Jesus promises to be the answer to the final and most painful of all human questions. In John 11, Jesus puts it this way, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live, even though they die, and whoever lives, whoever lives by believing in me will never die. It's also important as we're thinking about this to recognize that as the church plays offense, our offense looks a lot different than what the world expects offense to look like. It's not going to look like the aggression of, 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 of the world. 
It doesn't look like manipulation. It doesn't look like coercion. It doesn't look like force. Jesus comes to show us that it looks like something different. Have you ever wondered, have you ever wondered why Jesus tells his disciples here and even in other places to be quiet? You know, I mean, it's like, here it is, Peter, for the very first time, one of his students gets it. Like, you got it. You got it. Now, don't tell anybody. What? Why? What do you, why? It's, it, Nick is actually going to pick up on this next week, so I'm not going to steal his thunder, but there's a pretty good reason why. Is because everybody thought they knew what the Messiah was supposed to do. Everybody had an agenda for the Messiah this political figure that would do this, 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 and this. Jesus knew, Jesus knew that they did not understand the way he was going to be Christ, the way his kingdom would work. The way of the prevailing church is different than, than, than the way of the world. Jesus did not fit into their boxes. They didn't understand. People constantly misunderstanding him. If he fits in my boxes, if he fits in your boxes, every box, and he neatly fits into the box, we have to pause with that. He is still the master, and we are still the teachers. And I don't know about you, when I read the Gospels, I see the disciples screwing up a lot. And they're, they're pretty slow, they're pretty dense, and so am I. And so are you. And he is still the teacher. There are things that he asks us to do that we still don't understand. If he fits in all of the boxes, we should pause. <laughs> he breaks boxes. He can't be contained. The way he is Christ is different than what we expect. Even those of us who have this book. He's still changing. He's, he, is, he's, he is continually above and, be, and, be, and before us. The church is not dependent. The, the, the second primary way that we see that this rock tells us about the nature of a prevailing church is that the church is not dependent on human religious performance. Jesus says pretty clearly, people don't build his church. I am going to build my own church. That's what he says. I am going to build my own church. In the Greek, the my, in that sentence, has an extra emphasis. It's not just my church. Like, you know, Mercy Commons is my church. I, like, I, I go to this church, or I help out at the church, or, you know, these are my people. All true. But that's not what Jesus is saying here. No, Jesus is saying something different. This is my own church. It belongs to me. He's talking about the global church that he is building. The church does not belong to Peter. It does not belong to me. It does not belong to any leader or Christian personality. Performance doesn't cut it. No, the church belongs to Jesus the Christ. It is his own people. It is his performance that we stand on. This is really good news. You see, people fail all the time. Leaders disappoint us. Peter himself, man, Peter. I mean, we're looking at Peter. Peter himself, almost immediately after this, is going to screw up. Almost, like immediately. And then just a couple of chapters later, he messes up again. 
And then a few chapters later, he really messes up and denies his best friend, curses God and himself that he doesn't even know his friend who's sitting right across the courtyard from him looking at him. Massive failure. And it didn't stop there. And we're talking about Peter who saw the resurrected Jesus much later in his ministry. Paul has to correct him and rebuke him to his face for being a hypocrite. This, this is being people fail. Jesus does not. Jesus does not fail. It is really good to have mentors. It is really good to look to, to others. Paul talks about imitate me as I imitate Christ. Absolutely nothing wrong with that. We need that. We need a vision for what it can look like. But even though I, t- I talk about I mean, Kenneth Bailey, I joke about these things. My hope is not in Dallas Willard. My hope is not in Kenneth Bailey. My hope is not in whoever I'm listening to on my podcast. My hope is in Jesus Christ. He is the one I put my hope in. He is who we're called to place our hope in. He does not fail. I love this. Towards the end of his life, Jesus in in the gospel of John, talking about Satan, he says this, he has nothing on me. He has nothing on me. There is no secret. There is nothing to be revealed. Jesus is thoroughly who he says he is all the time. TMZ has nothing on him. Nothing. If Jesus is the one building, then how is he going about building it? How is he building? There is a lot of different ways that Jesus Jesus is building, and, and, and we don't have the time to go into all of them. I'll just mention one. It's not even here in my, it's not even here in my notes, but I just feel prompted to do it. One of, the, one of the primary ways that Jesus is building his church is through interceding for you and me. <laughs> do you get that? Jesus is at the right hand of his Father, rooting for you, praying for you, talking to God about you. He's talking to God about the church, but the church is made of living stones and he knows your name. And he is exalted. He is no longer confined. He is able to, he is able to intercede for us. We have an advocate with the Father, one who is for us, constantly for us. And it's not like the Father's against us. We have a tremendous trio that is rooting for us. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit all working on our behalf. Read Romans 8 sometime. Read Romans 8 and see the Father working for you. The Son working for you. The Holy Spirit working for you. All the hope that we have. Jesus does not fail. Your position in the church as you submit to Jesus is secure. Your place is secure. The church is secure. Boy, beginning with Peter, one of the the other primary ways that Jesus is building his church is through the people who proclaim the truth of who he is. You know, Peter holds a really unique position in human history. The Father bestows on him faith to see Jesus as the Christ, the center of the new people of God. 
His is the first statement of faith for the church. It's like the light bulb moment. It's this huge transition point in Jesus' own ministry. He has been doing his itinerant preaching gig, going to town to town, healing, casting out demons, preaching, and now he is going to turn his gaze to Jerusalem and finish why he, why he came. Peter holds this really unique position. Now, this, this passage, by the way, and we don't have time to get into this, is hotly debated, you know? If, if this, is, this is where you find two major camps in Christianity, although there's more than that, but two major camps where, 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 the, where the Catholic Church sees that what is being said here is that the rock is the papacy. It's Peter, and it's, it's a continual succession from Peter. The, the, the Protestant Church says, no, that the faithful proclamation of who Christ is, is, is the church. I'm a Protestant. That's the camp that I'm in. But I think sometimes we throw out a little bit where the unique role and blessing that Peter actually has. He, he, God is using his faith and his declaration in that moment as an advocate of the 12. He's a representative of the 12, reconstituting Israel, declaring who the real king actually is. It's a very unique moment in history and time that will never be repeated again. But what does get to be repeated again is you and I declaring the same thing. We may not be that same particular moment in salvation history. But any time we remain centered on Christ and declare him and say, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. We are a rock. We are rocky. The challenge is, the challenge is we are often tempted to deny this or to water it down, or to try to fit it in, or to try to fill in the blanks. Matthew chapter 10, verse 32 and 33, Jesus said, So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. This week, this week, uh, Sienna, who is my six-year-old, beautiful six-year-old little girl, is in kindergarten. She came into our room before, before school. She was, going, she was going to school, so, so excited about it. She is, our, she is our extrovert, and this has been a hard year for, for her. So anytime she gets to go to school, she's like, woohoo! I get to go. I'm out of the house. She came in and holding this precious moments Bible. <laughs> it's Valerie's Bible from when she was a kid. Um, it's this white beat-up beat Bible. And she said, uh, she said that I, I'm taking this to school for show and tell. And, and I, I have to admit, like I, I was telling the guys earlier this week, I have to admit, like my initial reaction in my heart and in my mind, I am not proud of. My initial thought was, oh, sh should, you, should you do that? Like, is that, is that okay to do? I, I'm thankful I didn't say it. Uh, I, I, but my own heart was a little bit of like, well, will she get made fun of? Like, what will the teachers say? Blah, 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 blah. Fill in the bank because I'm so much more sophisticated than my daughter. <laughs> Let the little children come to me <laughs> for theirs is the kingdom. I, 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 Valerie was much wiser than I was and said immediately, it was like, what are you going to say? <laughs> I'm like, well, I don't know if you should be doing this. I was like, cool, what are you going to say? And, uh, and Sienna said, 
I think she said three things. They're a little fuzzy in my head. I wish I would have written them down immediately. But the middle, the middle, I think the first thing is like, yeah, it's my mommy's Bible. The second one I remember very clearly. She said, you should really read it. It's important. And as I, as I sat with my thoughts and God, I think because I'm preaching this, right, uh, was hitting me of just like, ah, I, I became proud of her. Something shifted in me of like, a, a welling up of like, man, that is awesome. You go, go girl, that's amazing. We have had a year of quarantine. We have had a year of sheltering in place and keeping our distance and not speaking with our neighbors and not going out of our way. But church, as things begin to open up, the muscle of proclamation will need to be exercised. And may it start with me. May it start with me. The third and final point this morning, as we look at the rock, it tells us about the nature of a prevailing church, is that the church prevails in him. We prevail in him. John 15, 5. In John 15, 5, Jesus says, I am the vine you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. We are dependent on Jesus in the same way, in the same way that Jesus modeled dependency on his father. John 5, John 5 19, Jesus says this. This always blew my mind. Jesus, these are the words of Jesus. Very truly, I tell you, the son can do nothing by himself. He can do only what he sees his father doing. This is the relationship and the level of intimacy that we have been invited right into the middle of. This amazing relationship between the father and the son, this dependent interaction we have been invited right into it, into the center of it. Jesus makes this amazing statement in John 15. He says, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. Make your home in my love. Get used to living in my love. It's spacious. There's room for you. As the Father has loved me, <laughs> I have loved you. You thought about that? How much does the Father love the Son? And Jesus loves us with the same love. It's, we don't get like a warmed up version. We don't get like the begrudging, like, I guess I got to like these people. I made them, I guess I got to do something, like, like the dog that I have at home that we bought. And I'm like, I guess I got to feed it. I love it. Penny's great. But th 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 we do not have the same relationship. God is not begrudgingly tired of taking care of this mess he created down here. It doesn't happen. His heart and his overflow, as the Father has loved me, I have loved you. Make your home here. Make your home in my love. We abide through the work of belief. If, if, this is one of my tropes. I fall back on this one all the time from John 6. 
when the, when the Pharisees come and say, God, you know, say, Jesus, what, what are the works? You know, what, what, what must we do uh, to do the works of God and the works that God requires? And Jesus says this, believe in the one he sent. The work of God is this, to believe in the one he sent. Our primary work, a foundational work, not that there isn't plenty of action and response and, and, and to, to be done, but our primary work, church, is the work of belief. This world will try to pull you off. It will try to convince you otherwise. Our primary work is to strive to enter the rest that was purchased for us, as, as the book of Hebrews talk, talks about. Abiding, though, as we do this, as we as we as we we get up and we come to Jesus, we sit with him, we learn from him, we keep coming back to him. As we do this, as we abide, it leads to action and it leads to fruitfulness. It's not the other way around. We don't just jump to action. We can do nothing. <laughs> we are, we're not good at this. <laughs> we can do nothing, especially nothing that really lasts apart from him. We're, we're not helpless but the things that last come from him and in partnership and in partnership with him. As we abide in him, we follow. He, he nudges us. He teaches us. We are following our rabbi. We are following our teacher. We are following the Christ. He points out things. And like we've been talking uh, the, last, uh, the, the last few weeks, he points out things that are already in our hands. Church, what's in your hands? What has he already given you? And you guys, can, uh, you guys can join me back up here. Church, we, uh, good news. I got some good news for you. We, uh, we don't have to save the world. Jesus can do that. <laughs> Jesus can do that. He's quite capable of doing that. We get to hug our neighbor. <laughs> we, get to we get to boldly ask our coworker going through a divorce if we can pray for them. That's what we get to do. We get to invite that friend at the gym to church. We get to invite them to dinner. That's what we get to do. We get to pray for people. We get to pack boxes for families at Richmond Elementary. That's something that we get to do. We get to do what someone anonymously did in, in my own life group, and I couldn't be more, I couldn't, couldn't be more proud. Heather McLeod, Heather, see, I gave you another shout out, so you guys <laughs> Heather McLeod texted Val uh, just, just the other night and said that someone anonymously from our life group paid the rent for one of the girls that's, one of the girls that's in the OC United Thrive program who was falling behind and struggling. Felt such a sense of joy in hearing, in hearing that. We get to do that. This is a prevailing church. When you're tempted to think living here is too hard, when you're tempted to think that our culture is just getting too dark, too political, too angry, too perverse, when you're tempted to shrink back because you fail more often than you'd like to admit, we must stand up to remind each other that he is the Christ, the son of the God who is alive and he is building his church. Thank you for listening to the Mercy Commons podcast. If you enjoyed today's content, please rate us and hit subscribe. And if you'd like to learn more about us, 
visit our website at mercycommons.church.